We're starting a new series today, The Gospel Transformed Life. Yeah, it's a study of First John. Caleb would be normally doing this, but he said he had something better to do this week. So uh, he tagged me. Let's get going. The story goes like this. John the Apostle was going to the public baths in Ephesus, Ephesus with some friends one day. Upon arriving, he found out that a fellow by the name of Serinthus was there. And John immediately left the bathhouse, exclaiming, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of truth, of the truth, is inside. And it's also said that John sought by proclamation of the gospel, quote, to remove that error by which Serinthus had been disseminated among men. We don't know a whole lot about this fellow Serinthus, but we do know that he taught a false gospel. He said that Christ did not come in the flesh. Serinthus distinguished between the man Jesus and the Christ, or the spirit of the Christ. He denied the supernatural virgin birth of Jesus. He taught that the Christ descended on Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism and left him again at the crucifixion before he died, never to fully embody the flesh. Serinthus is also said to have taught that Jesus will be raised from the dead at the last day, when all men will be raised. Serinthus denied Jesus Christ as both fully human and fully divine. And the letter of 1 John was written in part as a polemic against that teaching. And when we talk about John, his concern, he had many concerns in, in the letter that he wrote. But he's concerned about this teaching that was taking place in the churches that he served. There were those that were teaching that Jesus was neither fully human or fully divine. And that's a distortion, a huge distortion of the gospel. And that kind of teaching began in the first century and has in one form or another been taught throughout the centuries, even down to today, by those who deny Jesus Christ. One example of that kind of teaching is those who say that Jesus was not God, but he was a good moral teacher, or he was a good man. To deny Jesus' humanity... Or to deny his divinity is to eviscerate the gospel. It is to make Jesus' death and resurrection null and of no value. Paul called this kind of teaching another gospel. And in Galatians 1.9 he said, As we have said before, and I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be condemned to hell. John was concerned about the false teaching, but the concern was his family those he served in the churches that he was a part of. In the letter of 1 John, we see John's call, John call his reader children. He gently refers to them with terms like fathers and young men and beloved. He is concerned in his letter that they are not condemned by their sin, that he reminds them that God's forgiveness is available to them, and he's concerned that they know and practice what John calls in the letter both the new and the old commandment to love one another. John is, first John is polemical, but it's also pastoral. His letter is not a theological treatise, but shows a pastoral desire to protect his readers, his children, and establish them in the faith. John seeks their joy, their holiness, and their assurance in Christ. And at the same time, the letter speaks against this false teaching about Christ, so that John's spiritual family would not be deceived. And John seems to be most concerned that his spiritual family know that Jesus was the Christ and that he, quote, came in the flesh. 
1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father God, you are your Jesus. You are fully divine. You are fully human. And you have brought eternal life. And as your word says, you are eternal life. May our time this morning, Lord, reinforce those things in our hearts. And may we be uh, encouraged, Lord, to call you God, to call you divine, as well as human, like us. As your word says, that we that you would know everything that we know. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us now as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, First John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, I'm going to take each of the first four verses separately, and as, as we do that, as you can see on the screen, I'm, uh, I have the whole passage up there, verses 1 through 4, and the, and the verse that we'll be looking at is highlighted in bold, and I wanted to do that just to keep the verses in context, which is pretty important. So, John, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is a proclamation. Now, John uses the word proclaim in verses 2 and 3, and he uses it later in verse 5. And while he doesn't use the word in verse 1, John is proclaiming. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched, he's proclaiming his experience. He's proclaiming his time with Jesus Christ. The Greek word proclamation carries the meaning to announce and also carries the meaning to bring back the message. It's an idea, the idea of reporting back or reporting again. In my working days, I would often report and report back. I would report to my boss, usually in conversation. Uh, sometimes I would report to my boss and his boss, usually in the form of emails with uh, spreadsheets and, and uh, summarized sales and uh, trends and profits. Sometimes it was to my boss and his boss and their bosses, and that usually took place at a national sales meeting where we'd meet in a big room and I would prepare a PowerPoint presentation about what happened in my district in the previous year and what I anticipated would happen in the coming year. That's all reporting back. That's, what, that's how John uses the word. Because he was reporting to his spiritual family what he had proclaimed before. This wasn't new. What he's talking here about is not new. He's reporting it again, though. <clears throat> about the person and about the work of Jesus Christ. John was, was reporting to them, again, to reinforce what they needed to hear about Jesus in the face of the false teaching that was infiltrating their fellowship. Now, I recall, I think it was Derek, um, no, but Derek's not here, so it must have been Caleb, <laughs> that said that we need to continually preach the gospel to ourselves to remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us in freeing us from sin and freeing us to serve him. And as with John, to remind ourselves of who Jesus Christ is. 
This is what John is proclaiming. And anyone familiar with the Gospel of John, especially the first chapter, will see a connection here to First John. In fact, there are many connections between the Gospel and the letter, and we'll see some of those as we go through the, our time today. But in this first verse, John uses two words he used in the first verse of his Gospel. He uses the word beginning, and he uses the word word, which we would recognize as the Greek word logos. Both words are about Jesus, and both words appear in the gospel and in the letter in the very first verse. In the gospel, John uses beginning to indicate the beginning of all things. And in that beginning, Jesus was present, and he was eternally existent with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was fully God. In the letter, John uses the word beginning to refer to Jesus, of course, but also to the beginning of the gospel message. He says, which we have heard and which we have seen. He says something similar in 1 John 3.11. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. As John does in the gospel, in 1 John, he uses the word logos to refer to Jesus and to something more about Jesus. The word, the logos here, is the word of life. The Greek word for life is the word zoe, which John uses in the sense of eternal life. The life that God gives through Jesus. Life as what one commentator said was life in the absolute sense. So we have in the letter of 1 John what we have in John's gospel. We have Jesus Christ proclaimed as God as the source of life, the best life, the eternal life. And John uses all of this to expand on his main point. His main point is that he wants to remind his readers of what he has told them before. He has heard Jesus, and he has seen Jesus. He has touched Jesus. He has seen and heard and touched this one who is the word of life. John is an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and a witness to the life that he brought. Jesus was not one thing at one time, and then another thing at another time. He's not one time a man and another time filled with the spirit of the Christ. He was always fully God and fully man. John knows this because he saw and heard and touched this Jesus in all that he taught and all that he did. And I can imagine John, as he's writing uh, the letter, that he's thinking about his times with Jesus. He would remember the times Jesus spoke. He would Remember the times Jesus healed. He would remember the times Jesus did miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000. And he would remember the times that Jesus cast out demons and raised the dead to life. John remembers the closeness he had with Jesus. Even the time he rested his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. This is the Jesus John knew, and this is the Jesus he wants to remind his readers that they know. John proclaims what he has seen. Verse 2, and I'm going to read verse 1 for context. <clears throat> that which, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. The Greek construction of this passage suggests verse 2 is parenthetical. But while it is parenthetical, it's not insignificant. John is highlighting what he just spoke about, what the word of life means. I use some Bible study software to help me prepare. 
one day they're going to make some Bible study software that just does it for you. I'm looking forward to that day. But it hasn't come yet. But there's a feature in this software that I use. It's called Factbook. And so what that allows me to do is it allows me to click on a word in the scripture or in a passage and, or, and what will come, it'll come up with uh, a report about that word or about the concept behind that word and it'll give me all kinds of articles and resources that relate to it. I found it revealing that when I clicked on the word zoe, the Greek word for life, the fact book came up with an article about, not about eternal life, but the article was about Jesus Christ. This is precisely what John is talking about here in verse 2. John has declared that he has seen and heard and touched Jesus. But he's witnessed to more than that. John, to use his words in verse 2, has seen and testifies and proclaims, quote, the eternal life. Seeing, of course, is what John had already talked about. He had visually seen everything that Jesus did and said. Saw it with his own eyes, including the resurrection. And it's interesting to note that John was the first of the disciples to believe, however imperfect that belief was. John 20, verses 3 through 8. So Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple here is John. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. This is what John is proclaiming to his people. This is what he had proclaimed to him, and he's proclaiming again. And we've already spoken about the idea of proclaiming, that is to announce and to tell again. But with the word testify, John is giving a proving sanction to what he has seen and to what he is proclaiming. This is real. This is the truth. His opponents, Serinthus and, and others like him, would try to deny that Jesus was God, would try to deny that Jesus didn't rise from the tomb, would try to deny <clears throat> that Jesus paid for our sins. Rather, to paraphrase John, he would say, In my witness of Jesus Christ, I have seen that he is both human and God, and he's the only source of eternal life. John, Peter, and the rest of the disciples said as much. Going back to John's gospel, John, John chapter 6, 66 through 69. After this, many disciples had turned back and no longer walked with him. What had happened here is that Jesus had just recently fed the 5,000. And people were flocking to him. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people were following him. And then Jesus began to say some hard things. Difficult things. And as the passage here says, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is not, is not only the one who brought eternal life to those who believe. Jesus himself is eternal life. You cannot separate Jesus Christ from eternal life. 
And so here's another connection to the Gospel of John. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father prior to his arrest and crucifixion. This is often called the high priestly prayer. Jesus asks that the Father would bring glory to the Son and then goes on to define eternal life. John 17, 1 through 3, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those you have given him. And this is eternal life. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus Christ is knowing and possessing eternal life. John also says in this very important parenthetical statement, this eternal life was made manifest, that it was revealed. When John says that this life, this zoe, is revealed, he is saying that it was Jesus Christ who was revealed. So John is, is connecting Jesus and eternal life. And he's making no separation between the two. John had seen this life, he testifies to it, and he proclaims it to his readers. In a word about eternal life, eternal life is not about longevity. It's about the quality of life that Christ offers. This is the abundant life the Good Shepherd talks about in John 10. Our friend Serenthus would have denied all of this. But John has seen it, and he proclaims it. And he testifies to it. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In the first two verses, John spoke of the what of his proclamation. Now, he moves on to the why. John writes that he proclaims what he has seen and heard, in order that his readers may have fellowship with him, and presumably with those who are with John, and then with one another as well. Fellowship is important to John, not just here, but throughout the letter. John expresses fellowship in terms of love. For example, 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, he says, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Fellowship, in Greek, is the word koinonia. And it's the association or the connection believers have with one another built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It is a communion in the sense of being bound together. And it is participatory. In that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and those who believe participate with one another in fellowship. As John says, our fellowship is not only with one another, but with the Father and the Son. And the fellowship is expressed many ways in the New Testament. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body of Christ and that we are the body of Christ and individually we are members of it and each member of the body has received a spiritual gift in order to edify and to minister to one another. He says that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And he says that one part of the body may seem insignificant but is just as significant as any other part of the body. 
He, Paul also expresses this idea in Ephesians four fifteen through 16. Rather, Paul says, speaking the truth of love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we're members of the body, and we're members of one another, and it's not just a matter of being together and smiling at one another and hugging one another and saying, you're nice and I'm nice and we're all nice. It's, it's not about that. It's Well, I am nice, but um, it's not about that. It's about us working together. Paul talks, us, talk, uh, talks of us as joints and ligaments working together, building the body up in love. And fellowship is also described by Jesus in John 15, 5 through 10. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Fellowship for Jesus there is that we abide in him. And then Jesus also explained fellowship in his prayer of John 17, the one we referenced earlier. Here in John 17, 21 and 22, He's again praying to the Father. And he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that that they may be one, even as we are on. We are one. Fellowship is good for us. It's good for one another. We build each other up. We minister to one another with the spiritual gifts that God has given us. But there's another purpose to the fellowship that we've been given. And Jesus says is that the world may believe that God had sent Jesus Christ. In his commentary on the passage, John Stott says, Fellowship is a specifically Christian word. It denotes that common participation in the, place, in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all believers, It is our common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. So John could not have written that you also may have fellowship with us without adding, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, since our fellowship with each other rises from and depends on our fellowship with God. Verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. John uses use of the word our joy may also be translated your joy. Either one is possible. But what is certain is shared joy here comes with knowing Jesus Christ. But what does John's joy have to do with that? Joy is not possible with people who deny the humility and the deity of Jesus Christ. Several times in the letter, John speaks about the measure of who really is a follower of Christ and who is not. For example, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all they all are not with us. The churches John was writing to were concerned about these people who were separating themselves from the fellowship, these people who denied the divinity and the humanity of Christ. They were worried about that, worried about what that meant for them and what that meant for the church. John reminds them that if they did leave, it's because they were never part of us. The joy John speaks of is possible only with those who share the joy of knowing Christ. John is familiar with shared joy, and he wants his readers to share joy with one another. John learned about shared joy from Christ. Back to the Gospel of John, John 15, 11, and 12. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, back to Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, addressing the Father, and these things I speak in this world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. John wants to assure his readers, his children, of their place in Christ and in their salvation. John wants them to recognize that those who are speaking about Jesus that is not from truth are not a part of their fellowship, nor a part of their joy. John's joy is not some selfish desire to be happy, but the joy he wants to share comes from the knowledge that his readers, his children, know who they are in Christ and that they are secure in him. Knowing that, John will know the joy that his readers are a part of the fellowship and that he and they together have Christ, have in Christ and with the Father and with the Son. Serenthus could not have known, known the joy that John is talking about. The view of Serenthus and of those many others through the centuries who have denied Christ, even down to today, says that Jesus was not, in saying that Jesus was not God, just as we said before, just rips the gospel to shreds. And it is no gospel. If Jesus was not God, there is no value to the crucifixion and the resurrection, and there is no remedy for sin. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Jesus Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But John correctly proclaims that Jesus Christ is fully human, and he is fully God, that Christ came in the flesh and died for our sins on the cross and was raised, as John says, for our joy. Back to the gospel, John 11. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Do you believe this? 
One more passage from the Gospel of John. John 12, 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that we commemorate the arrival of Jesus to Jerusalem a few days before his crucifixion and one week before his resurrection. At this, what is called, often called the triumphal entry, Jesus is praised and he's honored as he should be. And part of this scene is Jesus riding on a donkey, which is a symbol of a victorious king. And John reminds his readers that part about, the part about the donkey was in fulfillment of a prophecy by Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9, that's the verse he quotes. That prophecy is a part of a larger section where God promises that he will defeat all of Israel's enemies and restore Israel to God's rule, under God's rule. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river the river to the ends of the earth. So what Zechariah is prophesying here is a son of David. He's saying that somebody in the line of David is going to come to Jerusalem as king. And when he does, he's going to ride in on a donkey. And for any Jew who is reading this, they would go, oh, yes, yes, that's part of the the prophecy of this Messiah who's going to come, and he's going to liberate us. He's going to cut off all war from us, and we'll be secure. And every Jew who read this would have assumed and believed that this king was a man. And they would be right. He was a man. But if a few verses later in this same prophecy, Zechariah, in chapter 9, verses 14 through 16, says this, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. So uh, there's a direct connection between this passage and the previous passage in Zechariah. And Jews reading this would have been a little perplexed. Because what the passage is saying is that this king that's coming into Jerusalem is God. It's the Lord God who's going to appear to them. For Jews, that would have been a little little wondering to them. What's Zechariah mean? Well, what he meant was that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is fully human and God, fully God, is the one who's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's not just a man. It's a man who's fully man and fully God. The one who rode in Jerusalem on a donkey was a man and at the same time was the God who rules over all and the one who brings eternal life 
to those who believe. That's what John's proclaiming. That's what he's proclaiming to his readers. That's what he's proclaiming to us. May we believe that. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice that this is Palm Sunday. This is the day that we remember when you rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And for so many on that day, Lord, they saw you, they saw Jesus as a great man, a son of David. And they thought he would ride in and overthrow the Romans and set up a kingdom. And while there will come a time when your kingdom is set up, that's not the purpose Jesus had that day. His purpose was to die and to be raised again. And the only way that could happen is that if Jesus was both fully human and fully God, fully human to take on our sins as one who never sinned and fully God who would raise, be raised from the dead. Thank you for that truth, Lord. May we remember it. May we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.